This is Dr. Kara Stillen, host of Reading Between the Lines podcast, which seeks to understand Washington politicians and their psychological antics. As the author of two published books and a YouTube channel with over 10,000 subscribers, I review political books, offer the latest news, and decide who the hell is losing their marbles this week in Congress or the White House. This week's book was Secrets of the Secret Service by Gary Byrne. But before we review this jaw-dropping tale, let's take a quick look at what's been happening in the news. Today's date is December 1st, 2020, which happens to be my Moody Golden Retriever's second birthday. Our family named him Larry because we're big fans of Impractical Jokers, where Joe is constantly screaming, Larry! So every time someone in the house screams it, we're all laughing. We definitely need to have something funny in our lives right now as the coronavirus is running rampant through the United States. There are now 13.6 million cases of coronavirus in the United States and over 270,000 deaths. The lovely state of Iowa, where I live, now has 229,000 cases with a population of just over 3 million. This means that 8% of the population of Iowa has tested positive with COVID. There now are over 2,400 deaths in our state. I want to remind the amazing people of Iowa that our lovely governor, COVID Kim Reynolds, laughed at a reporter when they told her the estimates could mean that a thousand Iowans could die of the disease. She thought that estimate was ridiculous and foolish. It's funny, I haven't seen a smile on Governor Reynolds' face since. In my last podcast, I described how my daughter's boyfriend had to go in for emergency surgery and how he tested positive for COVID and didn't even know that he had it. Luckily, I'm happy to report that my daughter has tested negative and we hope her test results remain that way. Sid doesn't live with us anymore. She's grown up and flown the coop, as we stayed in Iowa, which meant that we couldn't share Thanksgiving with her, which was really tough for all of us. My husband attempted to overfeed us with ham, mashed potatoes, turkey, stuffing, corn casserole, pumpkin pie, and strawberry pie, which I can't complain, but I wondered if we were emotionally eating our blues away, having to stay home to remain safe. Speaking of sacrifice and providing service to the country, let's talk about the book Secrets of the Secret Service by Gary Byrne. Now, I thought this book would consist of a couple of juicy tidbits about a few presidents and possibly a story or two about some near misses on the part of some crazed antisocial personality that sought to harm one of our nation's presidents. What I read was absolutely disturbing beyond belief. I'm going to start off by saying that Gary Byrne has vastly different political views than I do, but I'm going to take him at his word with this book. I do believe this book is absolutely worth the read, and I would highly suggest it. Do I believe 100% of what the book said? No, but I feel like Mr. Byrne did a good job of trying to present the information with the least amount of bias as possible. Now, I don't believe the man is a saint, but I do believe there are some serious and scary truths about the Secret Service that are talked about in this book. Let me be frank, the author states that if the Secret Service isn't revamped and isn't forced to progress, the nation is due to lose another president probably within the next couple of years. How does he come to these conclusions? Well, let's read between those lines. 
Apparently, the overtime is so good that some Secret Service agents can make more than $200,000 a year by putting in a massive amount of overtime. Those that choose to go that route of the Secret Service do so with the idea of only being within the organization for a couple of years. They want to make the big bucks and then head out the door. Hence, one of the reasons why there's such a huge turnover rate. Here's the problem though. Does the nation really want sleep-deprived armed men and women watching over the President of the United States and his or her family? Not only are the hours especially long, but Burns describes the low morale in the organization, the drinking and sexcapades with prostitutes abroad, and the many missed assassination attempts that the Secret Service have covered up, hoping no one will notice how many times the President's life has been in jeopardy. According to Gary Burns, the Secret Service has consistently been viewed as one of the worst places to work in the nation. Normally, a Secret Service member earns about forty dollars to $60,000 a year for about 40 hours of work a week. If any of you have been to Washington, D.C., you'll quickly realize that it would be next to impossible for someone to live in the area on this salary. Burns describes how Secret Service members often drive 60 to 90 minutes into work spend quite a bit of time finding a parking spot, work their shift, and then head home with the same long drive. Why would anyone want to work under these conditions? Here's where I wanna jump out of the book and talk about the effects of sleep deprivation on the human body. When you go to sleep at night, as long as you don't have sleep apnea and haven't taken any form of medication or drug that sedates you, when you fall asleep, your body will eventually move into a stage of sleep called REM, rapid eye movement. This is the stage of sleep in which you are dreaming. Now your brain has billions of neurons inside of it and those neurons connect and communicate with the brain as well as the rest of the body. And inside those neurons are tiny little compartments called axon terminals. And inside each of these axon terminals are compartments that store what are called neurotransmitters. Examples of neurotransmitters are serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, etc. These neurotransmitters are responsible for a host of the body's physical and emotional operations 24-7 a day. Why do I bring this up? Because it is during the stage of sleep called REM, when you're dreaming, that the brain is replenishing these neurotransmitters. Want to know why you feel like shit after a night of drinking? Because alcohol is a sedative and it doesn't allow the body into REM sleep until a majority of the chemical has made its way out of the person. Depending upon how drunk you get, your body may not have the chance to have neurotransmitters ready to go when you finally wake up. This means the reticular activating system, which is in charge of sleep and wake cycles, as well as general feelings of sleepiness, will not be alert. This decreases a person's reaction time by two to three seconds, and more than 100,000 car crashes happen each year due to drowsy driving. Can you imagine what this might do to a soldier or police officer holding an armed weapon? Those individuals that are sleep deprived also have a decreased immunity and vaccinations may not work as well in those that average less than seven hours of sleep each night. It is true that a sleep deprived individual will fall into REM sleep quicker if they are insufficient in that amount of sleep that their body needs. 
Unfortunately, for those that fail to gain adequate recovery time in REM and various other sleep cycles, these individuals will lose, on average, three to five years off their own life. Consistently, sleep-deprived individuals have a higher than 40% chance of having heart disease than those that gain adequate sleep, three times the chance of having type 2 diabetes, and a 36% higher risk of getting certain cancers, increased levels of anxiety, depression. If that doesn't convince you about the importance of sleep, maybe this will. Some of the worst disasters in history were due to sleep deprivation, including the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the nuclear issue in Chernobyl, and the nuclear problem at Three Mile Island. Not having adequate sleep causes great cognitive issues, including memory loss, an inability to remain attentive, a lessened ability to problem solve, a lack of concentration, and trouble with basic reasoning skills. A lack of judgment is probably one of the worst symptoms of sleep deprivation, and if I were the president, I wouldn't be sitting too well with the knowledge that my protectors were lacking in all of the above. A lack of sleep can cause a person so much trouble that they begin hallucinating and can even do so in broad daylight. Gary Byrne was part of the Secret Service for many years and it came to light one day that skinned squirrels, yes you heard me right, skinned squirrels were being found in strange places on the White House lawn. The Secret Service attempted to investigate the issue only to find that the young agent was trying to keep himself awake after hours and hours of overtime and was trapping squirrels and killing them to keep his mind busy and awake. And killing them to keep his mind busy and awake. The agent was taken off his post and sent elsewhere, but the story does not surprise me. And I'm sure many officials believe the agent to be mentally ill, but I would disagree. Massive amounts of sleep deprivation can mimic hardcore psychological disorders like mania, major depression, psychosis, or psychopathy if the person is left without rest. I would have been extremely angry if I had been this agent because there's little doubt that sleep deprivation probably causes the very odd and disturbing behaviors shown above. One could definitely fault the organization itself for bringing about such strange behavioral reactions. Think about the times in which you stayed up for 24 hours or more. Did you have fits of laughter and didn't know what you were laughing about? Did you get grumpy and lose your patience? These are only minor signs of sleep deprivation. What might you look like if you only slept four to five hours a night for six to seven days of the week? That is what the men and women of the Secret Service are doing. And what they don't realize is their sacrifice is probably gonna take years off their own life and set them up for future health problems even if they spend their youth in good physical shape. This lack of sleep and low morale were only the beginning of what Mr. Byrne described in his book about the Secret Service. Starting with President Bill Clinton and arriving at the first couple months of President Trump's executive term, Gary Byrne describes the constant battle between the Secret Service and various presidents to keep the Commander-in-Chief safe, but to also provide room for their political goals. President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton were no doubt one of the most difficult couples for the Secret Service to detail. There's no doubt that Bill and Hillary Clinton are extremely social people and they brought these behavioral attributes with them to the White House. 
The Secret Service first encountered this when Clinton became president-elect and the Secret Service made their way to the governor's mansion to begin protecting the new president and his family. What they weren't ready for were the astonishing amounts of friends and family that came to the mansion at all hours of the day and night expecting hospitality. As someone that's lived in a small town, I totally understand this attitude. the Secret Service had quite a fit, though. Apparently, the Clintons enjoyed throwing all sorts of huge parties at the White House, though, and the number of guests that came was always much larger than the numbers they'd given the Secret Service agents. When the Secret Service attempted to do their job and make sure they could protect the President and the First Lady, the Clintons started to complain about the grumpy manner in which the Secret Service was attempting to do their job. Trying to protect President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton was a negative experience for the Secret Service. When Bill Clinton continued to obstruct investigations, lied under oath, and asked other federal employees to lie for him, this led to impeachment hearings that eventually led the Secret Service to be involved, and they did not want to be. The Clintons had consistent media relations demands, professional and personal conveniences took priority over standard events and transportation of security procedures. President Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton didn't seem to realize that the world didn't revolve around their schedules. President Clinton even stopped airplane traffic at the LA airport because he wanted to have a haircut from a famous beautician. At one point, he left his ring in a hotel room and refused to get out of his limo to board Air Force One without the wedding ring on his finger. The Secret Service had to bring his ring to him and his schedule was behind because of it. Each time a schedule falls behind, it puts the president at risk, so something potentially could happen to him or her. Not only was it difficult to deal with issues like this, but President Clinton also felt he needed to continue jogging around the National Mall area where it would be nearly impossible to protect him if a shooter decided to take him out. In fact, an armed man from Florida came to Washington, D.C. to do just that. And the only reason why he didn't succeed with killing the president was because a friend of his told on him. Otherwise, who knows what would have happened. Not only did President Clinton partake in behavior that put his life at risk, he also put the lives of many Secret Service members at risk. According to Barron's, President Clinton had what he called OTR time. This means off the record time. This meant he would sneak off from the White House in order to meet with his mistresses and Clinton was known for changing his mind at the last minute, putting himself and his detail at even greater risk. Many Secret Service officers wondered why they were putting their lives at risk for a president whose behavior was less than ethical. Agent morale dropped significantly when one of its members was severely injured in a crash because of one of Clinton's sexcapades. During OTRs, when the president left the White House, he asked for the red and blue lights not to run. Each time the president moved via automobile, the DC police were notified so they could keep civilian vehicles away while the president drove through town at a higher rate of speed. In order to keep the president safe, the motorcade does not stop at red lights and drives at a higher rate of speed to keep the president safe. When Clinton went on these little rendezvous, each car in the motorcade tried to stay together, but the red lights and blue lights were not on, so civilian cars pulled out in front of various SUVs. 
Secret Service call the distance between each car a potential kill zone, and when one SUV is not right up next to the other, it puts the president's life at risk. The agent driving the vehicle that was hit ended up with brain damage, which altered his personality. Now, just as a side note, this means the agent must have hit the area around his forehead, which houses the frontal lobe of the brain. This is the area responsible for a person's personality. The Secret Service ended up trying not to pay for the agent's medical bills in retirement because the agent ran a red light. But after he got a lawyer, the agency gave him what he wanted. Needless to say, the Secret Service agents were quite upset. One of their own had been killed so that the president could go and have a booty call. What was the true role of the Secret Service? Were they supposed to guard the president under any and all circumstances because he was the person the American people had voted into office? Or do the Secret Service have a say when the president goes too far and puts their lives in danger? This question would be asked again and again as presidents walk the line between safety and the wants of their own politics. And another woman outside of the fence thought that man was the president. The shooter took out their weapon and started firing at who they believed was the president. Had the tour guide listened, this never would have happened. When Secret Service were posted on the roof, the disputes between Bill and Hillary, which got quite loud, would leak out to the press. Hillary demanded that those on the roof be taken off of there. Hillary had thrown a vase across the room at one point and was pissed that it somehow got leaked to the press. This became problematic when aircraft flew into the roof of the White House, which was unarmed and agents were returned back to that portion of the White House. Without Secret Service agents posted in places where they needed to be, armed agents grabbed their weapons when alarms went off, ready to shoot if they encountered an intruder. One night, President Bill Clinton rounded a corner and stood face to face with an agent who had his MP5 drawn to Clinton's head and a laser dot lighted up his forehead just above his two eyes. Now, I think I probably would have crapped myself if this had happened to me, but apparently Bill Clinton just remarked, whoa, fellas. It was the presidency of Bill Clinton, though, that forever changed the relationship of the Secret Service with the Commander-in-Chief. As many of us know, President Clinton couldn't keep his dick out of his pants, and so his behavior started to become known after Hillary's personal lawyer, Vince Foster, committed suicide and the FBI decided to investigate his death. Foster's office was in the West Wing, and the Clintons asked for the alarms to be shut off concerning his office door, and the Secret Service posted an agent so that they could know who went in and out of the office before the FBI arrived. Two women demanded to enter the office, threatening the Secret Service agent's job if he refused, and they ended up taking files from Foster's office. Congress ended up creating the Office of Independent Counsel, the OIC, and it was led by a circuit judge named Kenneth Starr. Eventually, a report that President Clinton was having an affair with a 21-year-old intern made its way to Starr's office. Staff knew that if he accused the president of having an affair and President Clinton signed a form stating he was not, he would perjure himself. At one point, the Secret Service had issued Monica Lewinsky, an intern, with a pass that she used to see the president. She was logged in each time she came to the White House. When certain members of the Secret Service attempted to keep her out, 
she became an employee of the White House. She had a pass to basically go everywhere in the White House except the private quarters. One of the Secret Service agents and another staff member saw President Clinton and Lewinsky in a compromising position. On October 29, 1994, an active shooter was by the fence line of the White House. A woman giving a tour pushed the Secret Service to let her outside with the group. The group went outside and there was a tall gray-haired man along with the tour. When a man by the name of Louis Fox, who used to be in the Secret Service, had dinner with some friends and leaked the affair of President Clinton with Lewinsky, the friends went immediately to the press. Starr attempted to subpoena members of the Secret Service, and the director said he would allow Starr to talk with the uniformed division officers if he left the rest of the agents alone. When questions arose concerning whether or not the Secret Service had to testify against the President of the United States, the director and former directors of the Secret Service stated that in order to protect the President, the President had to trust the members of the Secret Service. If the president knew the Secret Service could testify against him or her, they would distance themselves from protection and leave themselves at risk. On July 16, 1998, the Supreme Court declared that the Secret Service would have to testify against the president. After the Secret Service testified, an agent talked about having to dispose of semen-stained hand towels and tissues and a dress emerged with President Clinton's semen on it, it became obvious that the president had lied. On September 9, 1998, the Starr Report arrived in Congress and the House of Representatives voted to impeach President Clinton. When the case was tried in the Senate, a two-thirds majority was not met and President Clinton remained in office. When George W. Bush became president, the Secret Service had just moved into office space within Tower 2 when 9-11 happened. The Secret Service were able to get out of the building before it came down, but the agents were devastated by the happenings of the day. The President was flown from one military base to another throughout the day to keep the Commander-in-Chief safe. President Clinton not only dealt with domestic troubles, but Al-Qaeda started creating a massive amount of trouble throughout the world. In 1993, Al-Qaeda created a 1,200-pound bomb, put it in the back of a vehicle, and drove it into the World Trade Center. The bomb killed six people, but scared the people of America. Later in Manila, within the Philippines, Al-Qaeda placed bombs under a bridge to kill President Clinton as he drove over it, but the Secret Service got word of it and took a different direction. Otherwise, President Clinton would have been killed. U.S. embassies in various African nations were blown up and Americans were killed. The extent of the Al-Qaeda's threat would remain unknown until September 11, 2001. When he arrived at Ground Zero, President Bush was handed a megaphone where he gave a rousing speech to unify the nation. After President Bush returned to the White House, he demanded to go to Ground Zero the very next day, which made the Secret Service extremely uncomfortable especially when the nation didn't know if a second attack was coming or not. And their new office space would be on one of the highest floors of that building. Secret Service agents paced in front of the building, not being able to enter and panicking at the thought of getting onto an elevator. When I read this, I sat and shook my head, wondering why the hell the Secret Service didn't understand PTSD. Understanding mental health is not only important to the overall well-being of an individual, but it's also an important part of health within society. 
under no circumstance were they ready to go back to work the following day. The only other incident in which President George W. Bush's life was in danger was during a five-day European tour remembering World War II. On May 10, 2003, President Bush was in the capital of the nation of Georgia. The crowd for the president was supposed to be around 10,000 people, but it ended up being 150,000. The Secret Service attempted at first to secure the area, but it became impossible to use metal detectors. One man came to the speech with a grenade, and he was willing to die if it meant killing the president. The man slowly made his way through the crowd and went undetected because he didn't seem nervous at all. When he got within a good distance of President Bush, he pulled the pin from the grenade and threw it. The grenade flew through the air and smacked a little girl on the back of the head, and then landed on the ground in front of a Georgian law officer. The law officer recognized right away what it was and grabbed the grenade and slowly walked out of the area down to a park where he put the grenade within a brick wall. Now, why had the grenade not gone off? The grenade's lever had been released and it had activated, but the primer didn't move enough to set off the detonator. President George Bush and the Georgian people were extremely lucky that day. Eventually, the Georgian man was arrested. No other information was offered as far as any other close attempts on President Bush's life. When President Barack Obama won the 2008 election and took the oath of office on January 20, 2009, the Secret Service was more than concerned. President Obama was the first African American to win the presidency and the threats on his life were enormous, especially since social media had grown. Not only could threats come via mail, cell phones, telegram, but they also came via websites, through Facebook, email, and hidden sites. Travel became quicker, making it easier for people to get to D.C. if they wanted to create problems. Fearn states that the Secret Service are constantly working to keep threats and actions from reaching the president, but it's during election season when it gets its worst. It gets especially difficult when the president is traveling. It was only months after President Obama took office when two reality TV stars made their way through each protective layer of the Secret Service into the President's state dinner. The couple walked right in, stating the Secret Service were wrong and that they'd been invited. When the media found out about it, they blasted the Secret Service. It was one of the first times the organization had been called to the carpet on its failures. Another incident happened on November 11, 2012. President Obama and the First Lady were away, but the first daughter and Mrs. Obama's mother were at the White House. A car and a taxi stopped at a stoplight in front of the South Lawn of the White House. The man in the car had driven from Idaho with his rifle and had intended to scare or kill the president. The man got out of his car and started shooting at the White House, firing his rifle five different times. Secret Service agent Carrie Johnson was outside when the bullets flew past her. The Truman balcony was hit and another bullet hit a window but did not penetrate it because the White House windows are bulletproof. The Secret Service went right into action when they heard the sound of bullets. The woman in the back of the taxi got on Twitter and started posting about the incident and asked why no one was showing up. It took five minutes for the police to show up and they ended up finding the shooter's car abandoned with the weapons inside of it. Within the next couple of hours, the posts on Twitter disappeared and the story disappeared. The man was later arrested and no one would have known about the incident until the Washington Post found out about it three years later. The Secret Service attempted to make the story disappear so their actions would not be criticized. 
The Secret Service are trained to stay away from FFNs, also known as female foreign nations. These are women who are connected to terrorist, drug cartels, or criminal networks and are meant to draw the men's attention away from what they're supposed to be doing. They've been known to bug devices, blackmail agents, steal their vehicles, or even place bribes. Secret Service often have government credit cards that they use to pay for things and these have been stolen. Agents are told that they're supposed to be vigilant 24-7 because they can be targeted. Unfortunately, many Secret Service agents will spend the night hours partying and getting drunk as well as seeing prostitutes. One of the situations in which the Secret Service's actions became known was during the 2012 Summit of the Americas in Colombia. President Obama wanted to go to the summit to meet with different leaders from various countries in the Western Hemisphere. The Secret Service had been deployed weeks before to scout out the area and make sure it was safe. Many of these agents have wives and children at home. The agents that were sent to secure the area in Colombia in which Obama was going to be staying definitely had parties and invited many prostitutes back to their room. Apparently, it's normal for Secret Service agents to ask prostitutes to stay the night with them, and in one case, an agent did this and was successful at getting her to stay. But when the morning came, he refused to pay her. Now, I want to point out from a psychological standpoint that if a Secret Service agent simply wanted sex, they wouldn't be asking these women to stay overnight. The staying overnight is an obvious sign that they're missing the companionship of a relationship and further evidence that these agents are being pushed to the extreme. It doesn't make their behavior okay, but it shows how little time they get to spend with their wives and their children. The prostitute went to the authorities and they showed up with the intent of arresting the Secret Service agent. The U.S. government then found out about it, as well as the parties and the prostitutes, and sent many of the agents back to the United States. By inviting prostitutes into their rooms, Secret Service agents keep cell phones, government credit cards, and information about their mission that could have been compromised if these women got a hold of it. Not only could the information compromise the agents, but it could also compromise the life of the president. On September 16, 2014, President Obama went to the CDC where he was supposed to tour the building and talk to important people. The CDC has its own security and the Secret Service were supposed to work with them to make sure the place was secure for the president's visit. The Secret Service asked for a spreadsheet of the workers at the CDC and were supposed to do a background check on its laborers, but the Secret Service assumed that the CDC would do it. The Secret Service also sent a survey to the CDC asking if security would be armed. The CDC filled out the survey stating the security would be carrying guns, but no one in the Secret Service seemed to realize they needed to call the CDC and tell the guards they couldn't have their weapons. When the Secret Service and the President arrived, some of them knew that the guards at the CDC were armed and others didn't seem to notice. President Obama got on an elevator with its operator who had a criminal record and was carrying a gun. If the man had wanted to kill President Obama, it would have been the easiest assassination in the history of the nation. When Obama got off the elevator, the man took out his cell phone and videoed the president taking his tour. This is a big no-no. The Secret Service made mistakes, huge mistakes, but refused to take any blame for their failure. On September 19, 2014, an individual at the White House jumped over the fence and made his way not only to the outside of the White House, 
but was able to penetrate the door and get into the building. He ended up being jumped and secured by an off-duty agent. The Secret Service made sure the information did not get out of the White House. On March 4, 2015, a woman came to the White House in a vehicle and got out of her car brandishing a package. She called out to the Secret Service agent, stating that she had something for the president. When the agent yelled to her that they couldn't take any packages and that she'd have to send it through the mail, she placed it on the ground and yelled it was a bomb and tore off in her car. The Secret Service radioed in the bomb squad and began to seal the area off, trying not to create too much attention. Meanwhile, some lead Secret Service agents who were out drinking with a company car ended up making their way to the White House wondering why certain Secret Service agents had left their posts. They were drunk and belligerent and walked right through the area with a supposed bomb. Even though there wasn't a bomb, the two agents talked their way out of a DUI. Not only did this carry over from Obama's presidency, but when President Trump came to office, it continued. These soft endorsements escalate people's behavior, which might also be extreme. The protective duties of the president get more and more difficult each year as technology advances and the Secret Service is pushed to extremes. One of the most disturbing problems described by Burns came about during Obama's presidency with the soft endorsement of violence via social media users, politicians, and celebrities. Not only did this carry over from Obama's presidency, but President Trump came to office and this can... Has the nation always had trouble with protecting its president? Definitely. Andrew Jackson was the first president to see an attempt on a president's life. Andrew Jackson was the first president to go into communities and give speeches as well as meet people. His nickname was Old Hickory because of the barbecues and events he held to gain popularity. During one of Jackson's speeches, a man came out of the crowd and pulled two guns out of his clothing. His weapons fired, but they didn't hit the president. President Jackson was so shocked by this, he grabbed his cane and beat the crap out of the man, and the crowd joined in. It was seven years later when Congress decided to place the D.C. police around the White House to protect the president. During the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln was protected by the Bucktail Brigade, Company K of the 105th Pennsylvania Regiment. Confederates also attempted to fly blimps over the White House with explosives inside. President Lincoln was almost assassinated two different times by snipers before he was attacked by John Wilkes Booth. The first official head of the Secret Service, even though it did not share the name, was Alan Pinkerton. The first black Secret Service agent was John Scobell, who was hired in 1861 during the first year of the Civil War. The first female Secret Service agent was Kate Warren, who was hired in 1856. In the past, these agents were known as Pinkerton agents. When President Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's theater, agents failed to notice the peephole which had been drilled by Booth as well as the hidden lock he created to barricade the door. Not only did the Secret Service work to protect the president and his or her family, but they were also expected to reduce counterfeiting, which was widespread during the Civil War. Researchers believe that more than two-thirds of the nation's money was counterfeit. 
1881, President James Garfield was killed by an assassin, Charles J. Guitau, when he returned on a train. Guitau had stalked the president for some time and had cocked his weapon at the president two different times but had not pulled the trigger. On July 2nd, 1881, he waited for the president to come off of a train and when the doors opened, he shot the president twice. The crowd jumped on Guiteau and the president survived for another month and a half before he died from an extremely bad infection. President William McKinley was the next president to die by an assassin. He was shot by Leon Kosowskow, who pulled a pistol out of his clothing and shot the president twice in the stomach. McKinley's vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, now stepped into office. Theodore Roosevelt was the very first president in the nation to get 24-hour Secret Service detail. President Roosevelt scoffed at the Secret Service until they saved his life. While hosting an event, a man in a tuxedo cornered the president for many minutes, grumbling and complaining about the presidency. When the Secret Service finally were able to nab him, they found a revolver in his pocket inside his tuxedo. In 1917, Congress decided to pass a law making it illegal to threaten the life of the President of the United States. It would now be a federal crime if a citizen did so. The Secret Service also created Room 98, where Secret Service agents kept all letters and threatening information the President received. The Secret Service also began noticing some patterns on the part of assassins in that majority of attempts on the President's life had been by approachers, essentially people that came on foot with a weapon. On February 15, 1933, an approacher by the name of the man was arrested and was executed via electric chair for trying to kill the President. Another approacher came out of the crowd and threw a dagger at the President which came within inches of his body. Secret Service detail was provided to Vice President Harry Truman when physical signs of imminent death came to President Franklin Roosevelt. When Roosevelt finally died due to ill health, Harry Truman became president and he wasn't ready for such a drastic change to his lifestyle. Truman liked to take walks early in the morning down Pennsylvania Avenue and the morning he became president, he headed right out the White House door without any Secret Service and they didn't catch up to him till he was half a mile away. When the Secret Service finally got to him, Baron states Truman responded, Well now, it's very nice of you to join me. Because Eleanor Roosevelt refused to use the half million dollars she was allowed to complete renovations on the White House, the house began to fall apart when the Trumans started living there. While Truman's daughter was playing the piano, one of its legs went straight through the floor of the White House. Truman was pissed and demanded Congress to pay for renovations. Congress funded its renovation and the entire structure was rebuilt from the inside to the outside. Air conditioning as well as a basement and sub-basement were added. Harry Truman and his family moved into the Blair House during the renovations, which was a nightmare for the Secret Service. Not only was the residence a nightmare, but Truman continued his walks and the public decided to walk with him, making their own little walking club. The Secret Service knew that if a sharpshooter came along, President Truman would truly be dead. While Truman was staying at the Blair House, a man by the name of Oscar Colonzo and a man named Fresselio Torresola carried guns and came from opposite direction toward the president's residence. One of the assassins fired their weapons into the knee of the Secret Service agent. President Truman woke up from a mid-afternoon nap wondering if a car had backfired in the area. 
He stuck his big old head out the window looking for the source of noise and the Secret Service screamed at him to get back inside. There was a shootout and the assassins were not successful, but President Truman recognized how important his Secret Service detail was. In 1959, President Eisenhower almost died when his heart couldn't handle the altitude in Afghanistan. The Secret Service saved his life by providing him an oxygen tank. Eisenhower's convertible was almost crushed by a crowd in India when they surrounded the president's vehicle. Vice President Nixon almost died in Venezuela when he insisted on riding in the lead car of the motorcade and was ambushed. The crowds attempted to smash his vehicle with stones, bats, and other large objects. And had the Venezuelan military not interfered, Vice President Nixon might have died on that day. There were also multiple attempts on the life of JFK when an assassin, Richard Paul Pavlik, planned to kill him even before he took office in Washington, D.C. Pavlik shoved dynamite into his vehicle and headed to Palm Beach, Florida to the home of the Kennedys. When Pavlik saw Kennedy's wife and kids, he turned the car around, which alerted the Secret Service, who ended up stopping him later, finding out his plans to kill the would-be president. President Kennedy put himself at risk each time he had affairs with various mistresses or was hyper-social within high society. It became very difficult to find people to serve the Secret Service during the late 50s and early 60s, and agents were put in positions before they were qualified or had adequate firearms training. The idea of faking it became popular. When President Kennedy was eventually assassinated, the Secret Service had told him how vulnerable he would be in the back of a convertible. After his death, the Warren Commission described the great failures of the Secret Service. Giuseppe Genzera attempted to kill President Franklin Roosevelt. The approacher shot six times at the president, but none of them hit his body and talked about what needed to be changed, but those changes were never put into place. When Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. were also assassinated in the 60s, questions concerning political candidates running for president and civil rights leaders and their protection were questioned. Congress did decide to give certain political candidates Secret Service protection after Robert Kennedy's death, but only if they were at a certain risk in popularity. During the 1972 election, George Wallace, who was a third-party candidate, got Secret Service protection, but it wasn't enough. His podium was bulletproof, but a gunman by the name of Arthur Bremer approached Wallace, pulled out his weapon, and fired into Wallace's stomach. The crowd jumped on the assassin, and Wallace lived, but was forever paralyzed from the waist down. His popularity dropped after the incident, which probably cost him the election. President Ford was almost assassinated when a woman from a crowd drew a weapon from her clothing and fired it. The woman didn't know how to use the gun correctly and hadn't cocked the hammer. The woman made headlines as the first female assassin to try to kill the President of the United States. Seventeen days later, another female attempted to kill President Ford. The Secret Service had interviewed her weeks earlier, believing she was not a real threat to the President. They knew she was really good with a gun and took her gun from her. She was able to get a new weapon. On March 30, 1981, John Hinckley tracked Ronald Reagan to the Washington Hilton where he gave a quick speech. The Secret Service were exhausted, complacent, and didn't bother putting the president into body armor because they pulled his limo 10 feet within the door and thought they could get the president inside without any problem. 
the Secret Service had Uzi machine guns in their briefcases and quickly tried to usher President Reagan into his limo. One of the women who saw the president leave the hotel screamed out his name and Reagan turned his attention to her and waved. It took only seconds for Hinckley to pull out his weapon and fire at the president. The agents froze and attempted to cover the president. James Brady, who was the president's press secretary, took a bullet to the head and fell to the ground. Agent Tim McCarthy took another bullet to the chest. Secret Service agent Parr pushed the president into the limo and slammed the door shut. What he didn't know at the time was that a bullet had made its way through the space between the door and the car and had gone through Reagan's lung, causing it to collapse. Parr couldn't tell if the president was okay, but he seemed to have trouble breathing. He questioned whether or not to take him to the White House, where there was a doctor who could look over him, or to go to George Washington University Hospital. He decided to weigh on the side of caution and headed to the hospital. Agent Parr noted President Reagan's lips turning blue by the time he arrived. If one's lips turn blue or purple, this is a sign the human body is not getting proficient oxygen. Agent Parr's act saved the life of President Ronald Reagan. This was one of the first times that the transfer of power went from a living president to the vice president, who was President George Bush at the time. Vice President Bush was in Texas and quickly got on a plane and headed to the White House. Once there, he received the nuclear codes and made sure the American people knew he was in charge. It took 13 days for the president to recover and power was transferred back to President Reagan at that point. The public was told that President Reagan had never been hit by any bullets, and this was not the truth. Burns states that the Secret Service refused to make changes after this assassination attempt, therefore refusing to fix the nation's continued problems. Needless to say, the information in the book offered by Gary Burns is more than disturbing. There is no doubt that he cares not only about the president's safety, but also the lives of the Secret Service agents who are having mental breakdowns, suffering heart attacks before they should be, are divorcing at higher rates than the average public, are extremely sleep deprived, are making fatal mistakes, and are committing suicide at extremely high rates. Not only are the Secret Service agents suffering, but the organization that makes the rules for these agents is also suffering. Burns talks about how the organization is like a good old boys club where leaders take advantage of their situation and because of it put the agents lives at risk as well as the president. This book was written just at the beginning of Trump's presidency and he states that Obama barely made it out of the presidency alive and he believes it'll be a miracle if Donald Trump makes it through alive. Barron's believes someone needs to take charge of the budget given to the Secret Service and that leadership needs to be established. The training of the Secret Service needs to be implemented as agents only get 42 hours of training. To put this into perspective, a private citizen who carries a handgun is more trained than a Secret Service agent. The reckless behavior of the Secret Service agents needs to stop. The agents need to be punished for drug and alcohol use as well as dangerous sexual behavior or Burns believes it is only a matter of time before America will lose its next president. I found myself at the end of the book wondering what Gary Burns thinks of Donald Trump making it through his presidency and what he believes President-elect Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will endure during their administration. If I had to guess, I think the biggest threats to the nation are gonna come through cybersecurity, biochemical warfare, as well as increasing threats of China, Iran, and North Korea. The first priority will be the COVID-19 pandemic and rebuilding the nation's economy. 
I want to thank you very much for joining me today on Reading Between the Lines, and I hope you enjoyed learning about the Secret Service. I am now signing off, and I will talk with you soon.